This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. Morning, everyone. My name's Owen. I'm one of the co-leading pastors of the church here, and it's great to have you with us. You're so welcome, especially if you're here for the first time. Now, are you having a good weekend? I want to ask you a question. Anyone big into their family history? Anyone big into their family history? One or two of you? Okay, so you've looked into it, right? You've used one of the software packages. Has it, has it been helpful understanding a bit more about your past? Yeah? Um, I, I don't really know a great deal about my past. Um, I can tell you my parents were, were raised on the south coast uh, in Plymouth and Portsmouth and uh, if you know that they're navy towns and um, uh, all my great uncles on my maternal side were in the navy and my grandfather on my paternal side was in the navy as well so uh, so there is a bit of a tradition, naval tradition there, uh, not surprising in a, in a century when we had two world wars I suppose but nevertheless um, there's a bit of tradition there. Um, uh, I think... Um, I think my grandfather won the Cornish Marathon once, so I'll claim that as a bit of heritage. Um, and I think my great-grandfather on the maternal side uh, was originally from the Welsh Valleys, had a good singing voice, apparently came back from the war, had some injuries, so ended up making a living singing in pubs in Cornwall. Uh, so that, again, that's not something I would share, um, but nevertheless something to, to kind of... Uh, be interested in in our past and you know I suppose if I was to work harder at trying to understand my past I may discover more information there but you know um, I'm not a physiotherapist and a church pastor because I come from a long line of pastors and and physiotherapists Um, although I think there is a vicar some way back along the line but you know what there's also a bit of mental health on ill health I think in our past Um, there's even a question of illegitimacy in our family tree as well and of course those stories are buried you know because the grandparents never talked about those things those things were just not talked about. That family member was not discussed. Because there's a lot of guilt and shame and pain in family histories as well. So I don't know where you're at with your family history, whether you kind of feel connected to your past, whether you feel like you're continuing uh, the latest generation in a long line of generations uh, that you feel some strong connection with and perhaps great tradition with. But my guess is that most of us probably don't. My guess is that most of us are living in our present. We don't see ourselves as a strong continuation of the past. Is, is that right? Is that right at home? Is that, what you're, is that what you're thinking right now as you hear me speak? The reality is, is that um, some of us are unfamiliar with our past because we've not been told it, because of shame and because of pain. And so I think it's important to recognise that, first of all, that one of the reasons we're not connected to with our past is not just that we don't know it, is that actually there's shame associated with it as well, and there's pain. There's also, I think, a sense for us, particularly those of us that have kind of, you know, I don't know, maybe those of us that are under 50, there's a sense of, life's too short to worry about the past, let's, let's press into the future, let's reach out to the future. But as we know... Deep down, our past still does have an influence on us. Our ability to live in the present and the future is connected with what has gone on in the past, whether we like it or not. Certainly for me, doing the emotionally focused pathway has definitely helped me understand how my past has shaped my present. And importantly, has given me the ability to change my future by knowing what's gone on in the past. Very often if we just stick our heads in the sand and don't acknowledge what's gone on in the past, it can hinder us from embracing the future. 
So knowing the past is important for us. Understanding the past can empower us to live with a sense of purpose and meaning. Uh, some of you may have heard me talk about uh, Yuval Noah Hariri, who's a historian who's written a number of books, uh, a series. One was called Sapiens and then Homo Deus, and I can't remember what the third one was called. And uh, I've really enjoyed reading those books. I'm sure you would too. 21 million copies have been sold worldwide of Sapiens. And what he argues about in Sapiens is that what makes our human species... He argues that 70,000 years ago, there was more than one species of human. Uh, there was as Homo sapiens, there was Homo neanderthal, there was others, Homo australis, I think, uh, and others. And uh, he says, what makes Homo sapiens unique? Um, and that's us, like, because obviously there is, no, there is only one Homo uh, uh, species now, Homo sapiens. He said, what's made sapiens successful is our ability to share in a common story to live within a common narrative, to agree on a common story and work together. So for instance, if I held up a £10 note to you, which I haven't got with me, but if I had a £10 note here, you would understand the value of that £10 note, just as I understand the value of that £10 note. Some of us, that £10 note it will, is going to feed our family today. For others, it's a, it's a couple of drinks down at the bar. So, so the value that we attach to that £10 note might be different because of how many £10 notes we've got. But nevertheless, we all understand that the £10 note is the means to feed ourselves. It's the means to transport ourselves. It's the means to enjoy ourselves. Our, it is our common currency, and it's a story that we all agree on. But it is a story based on trust. Because a, a banknote is literally a promise to pay the bearer of this banknote whatever it is written on that banknote. I used to have a, I had a very short career in banking after university, uh, three years, and, um, and, and in that time I, I almost became a chartered banker. Um, I say almost because I left before I qualified. Um, but the reality is, is that money, and I understand the value of money, money is basically a, a system of trust, and it's, it's wholly dependent on us all agreeing on this piece of paper having a set value. And when trust in that story actually erodes, you then get runs on banks like we had in 2008, where everyone was like, oh no, the value of money is falling. I need to put it into something else. I'm not sure I didn't do this, and maybe you did, but some people put their money into gold when we had a run on the bank. Why? Because money, suddenly we lost trust in this piece of paper. But it's all a, a story of trust, and we all agree on it. And actually, money has been one of the most uh, successful stories of, of human history because it has enabled us to live in security and peace uh, and relative comfort because of its invention. Without it, we would literally still be bartering. You know, this jumper for that chair. You know, your hat for this microphone. You know, you kind of know those things. This microphone is probably worth about 400 quid. That hat is lovely, but it's probably only worth a tenner. You know, there's, there's a difference. <laughs> There's a difference. Maybe 20. <laughs> but the point is, sorry, I hope you didn't take offence. The point is, is that, is that um, we have to agree. We have to agree on what the exchange value is for things. Uh, and without money, we wouldn't have so much security, peace and comfort. So money is a good story, but is it a story to give your life to? Would you define your story, the story that you, uh, you live with in, as a story of money? Would you say... The big story that defines who I am is the story of money. Like, my life is about getting as much money as I can and spending as much money as I can. Here's the thing. Actually, some of us, well, no, all of us, that is a big part of our life. 
You know, we live within the system of trying to get as much money as we can so that we can spend as much money as we can on those things that give us pleasure and joy and security. So the question is, what story do you give your life to? What story do I give my life to? What's the big story of our lives? Or do we actually have one? Is it, is it the continuation of our traditions in our family? And we see ourselves very much within the traditions of our family. Is it the story of money or is it some other story that gives us definition and meaning to our lives? That's the, story, that's the question I want to focus on this morning is, what is the big story of our lives? What story am I living in? And you might, you might automatically turn to uh, the religious story, the story of Jesus. And of course, we are going to look at the story of Jesus. But some, for some of us, certainly, certainly during COVID, actually, COVID has caused us to question whether we do live in the story of Jesus. Because the story of Jesus that we've lived in so far was disrupted by COVID. And so we're naturally asking ourselves, is the story of Jesus the story that I want to live in? Or other people are going, actually, I feel so disrupted by COVID. I'd like to hear the story of Jesus because I want to know if it's a story I want to live in. It sounds like a story I want to live in. So wherever you're at, the question this morning I want to invite you to ask yourself is, what story are you living in? What story do you live in? And um, we're going to be continuing our box set on Mark. And this is just our second talk, so you haven't missed much. If you uh, are just joining us on this, then you can listen to our talks on our podcast. And we're also doing a podcast series with discursive elements to it as well. So that you can sign up for that on wherever you get your podcasts from. So we're going to turn to Mark 1, 14 and 15. If you've got a Bible, we're only going to read these two verses. Um, so turn to it, uh, highlight it, um, get your pen, underline it in your Bible. Mark 1, 14 and 15. I just want to say, this is my favourite verse in the whole Bible. Has everyone else, anyone else shared? Is this anybody else's favourite verse in the whole Bible? No, I didn't think so. Maybe not. Some of you will have a favourite verse. How many of you, your favourite verse is in the Psalms? One of you, two of you. How, how many of your favourite have got a favourite verse, say, in the Gospels of Jesus? Two or three of you. Okay, okay. Anybody else got a favourite verse, like in Genesis? Revelation, anyone? No, nobody else has got any favourite verses. That's fine. Okay, but this is my favourite verse. Are you ready? Honestly, this is my favourite verse. After Jesus, sorry, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. Can I just repeat that? The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The time has come. Normally, if I use the word the time has come, it's the time has come for us to leave for school. Come on, get in the car, kids. You know, the time has come for us to celebrate my daughter's birthday. Let's celebrate. The time has come for us to go on holiday. Let's get in the car and go. The time has come. It's about eminence. Something is happening that we've been preparing for for a while. This has a context. And this is my favourite verse in the whole Bible. Has anyone seen the, the, the movie on Disney Plus called The Rescue? Has anyone seen that? It's actually not a movie, it's more a docu-movie. Has anyone seen it? No, one or two of you. It's brilliant, isn't it? Okay, so if you haven't, and has anyone got Disney Plus? 
Oh yeah, a few of you have. So if you've got Disney Plus, just, just go and watch this movie because you're going to have a look. It actually is the story of the rescue of the Thai soccer team from the cave two and a half miles uh, deep inside uh, a mountain range in Thailand. And it involves um, a team of rescuers. Uh, two, the two main rescuers, the two guys that are leading the rescue, one of them is one of our own here in Long Ashton in Bristol. Uh, John Valanthan, an acquaintance of mine actually, I know him quite well. And um, uh, he uh, is the first person to find the soccer team two and a half miles inside this cave system. Honestly, I, I mean, obviously I've got a personal interest in it, but I, it's a really moving uh, documentary and I recommend you watch it if you get the opportunity to. Um, but what, um, what's really, what I really want to draw out of it from you is, is that for 10 days they didn't know where these boys were. And this was a deep, flooded mine system, um, cave system, and it was long. Uh, two and a half miles. Could you imagine just diving two and a half miles through a cave system where there's, there's small crevices, there's big caverns? Simply put, it was incredibly dangerous. And they brought in the, uh, the Thai SBS service, the kind of special, special forces. that They couldn't find the kids. And eventually these two men, one of which is one of our own from Long Ashton here in Bristol, one of the best cave rescuers in the world, they find them. And they have a GoPro camera with them as they find them. And the first voice you'll hear is John's voice, saying hello to the kids in English. And um, just the overwhelming sense of relief that these children were actually alive, because it had been 10 days since they went missing. The cave system was completely flooded. They were alive, they were perched on this rocky uh, crop within the cave out of the water. But that, although the relief and the joy and the, the overwhelming uh, celebration that they'd been found, that was just the first moment. Like, they then had to get those boys out of the cave system um, before the cave system completely flooded. And that's where the drama really ensues. But that moment where they discovered them for the first time is a bit like this moment when Jesus says the time has come. It is the beginning of the rescue. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, challenge. There's a lot of uh, adventure to come. But this is the beginning. And this is why this is my favourite verse in the Bible. It is the beginning of the new era of Jesus. And within the context of Israel, that was fundamentally profound. So, Jesus' announcement... The time has now come, is at the start of his rescue. But what Jesus recognises when he says the time has come is that this process has been going on for a long, long time. To understand this, we need to transport ourselves back to the time of Jesus. And I want to just come with me just for a moment and, and just go back in time and try and understand Jesus in the context in which he was living. Because so often, friends, our... Christianity, our traditions, Christian traditions, they tend to obscure the reality of what actually happened. And we, we kind of see it through the lenses of history, 2,000 years of history and culture and tradition and power structures and all of this, and we've got to get right back. And I'm not unique in trying to get us here. Theologians around the world try and do this. Help us get back to what it was really like. So let's transport ourselves back in time. Let's remember Jesus was a first century Jew. Now, some scholars, prepare yourselves for this, describe Jesus as a Jewish peasant. And some of you might already be struggling with that as an idea. What, Jesus is a Jewish peasant? 
That sounds so, so disrespectful. And the reality is, is that we imagine Jesus probably as a white, middle-class, educated man speaking the same language as us, and probably quite attractive, right? So I just want to kind of throw this image up on the screen for you. Um, back in 2001, in, uh, for a BBC documentary series on Jesus, a, uh, an anthropologist called Richard Neve created a model of what a typical Galilean man might look like. Now, this isn't what Jesus, he thought Jesus looked like, because we don't know what Jesus looked like. But based on um, an actual skull found from the region from the time of Jesus, this is potentially what a, a typical Galilean man would have looked like. Now notice the colour of his skin is not white. And I was just standing here as we were worshipping this morning and I just, I just wondered if any of us had the image of that man, that man's face, in our minds when we were worshipping Jesus. Or did we have a white man, fairly attractive, middle-aged, kind of like me, kind of, <laughs> I'm just joking, standing here talking to you in English? Of course, you could be forgiven for having that image. But what do you feel like if we were to say, no, actually, Jesus probably more, look more like that? The, worship, the Jesus you worship, the Jesus you pray to, will look like that. How does that make you feel? I think the trouble is, is that as, as, as Christians, we tend to make Jesus in our own image. But what if Jesus was Chinese? What if Jesus was Mexican? What if Jesus was Ghanaian? What Jesus wasn't was English and Anglo-Saxon. He wasn't. And we need to get that out of our minds. And when we do, we will see so much more relationship and power with him. Jesus lived in a world where religion and politics were intertwined. They went hand in hand. And we don't actually live in a culture like that anymore. We don't live in a culture where politics and religion go hand in hand. Sure, we have bishops that sit in the House of Lords, but that's nothing compared to the power that the church used to have in, in Britain. Um, in terms of power and wealth and land, the church was second only to the king. And if you want an example of that, just go down to Wells Cathedral, just 20 miles down the road, and just walk around Wells Cathedral to witness the incredible power and wealth that the church had. There's even a bishop's palace. It's opulent. And I don't know about you, but I get, struggle to get my head around it. I like the cathedrals, but I also think, is this really Jesus? I'm not sure. Well, I tell you what it is. It's a time, comes from a time when the church and, uh, and religion were bound up with the politics of our nation. Now, we don't live in a country like that anymore. But if you want an example in modern day times, you're pro the, probably the closest. I'm, I'm open to the... Uh, argument on this would be somewhere like Saudi Arabia where the law of the land is largely defined by religious law and, um, and that, that might be a bit more like the time that Jesus lived in where politics and religion were hand in hand so the political laws uh, at the time of Jesus were also the religious laws and those laws, which you probably know, were written in Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And, um, and, and those laws were 
regularly upheld at the time of Jesus. If, and you can, you can read this in, in the Gospels of Jesus. And there was one time where a woman caught in adultery is brought by the Pharisees to Jesus. The Pharisees were like these kind of re- religious teachers uh, and they were known for their, um, their sort of religious keeping of the law. And uh, they dragged her to Jesus and they said, this woman's been caught in adultery. Like, the law of Moses says we should stone her. What should, do you think we should do? He, they were testing Jesus. But essentially... They were living in a society where that woman would have been stoned for being caught in adultery. Now, you'll be relieved to know that Jesus stopped them from stoning her. But the reality was that was the law at the time. That was a a, a culture where the law uh, was religious and political. Now, since the law of Israel was so intertwined with the religion of their relationship with God. It meant that when times went well in Israel's culture and, and era, then they felt they were being blessed by God. And when things went badly, they thought they were being cursed by God. And they would, you know, basically try and get back into good, God's good books. Uh, and this cycle repeats itself right through the Old Testament. If, you, if, you, uh, if you've got any grasp of the Old Testament, you'll know that you see it repeated in this cycle. Uh, they kind of, God blesses them, they get excited, they celebrate, oh, God's blessing us, and then they're unfaithful, and then things go bad, and they go, God's cursing us, and so they repent, and they come back to God. Do you, do you know that cycle? If you don't know that cycle in the Old Testament, you probably know it in your own life, right? This was the kind of law... Uh, where religion and politics went hand in hand as a nation. And their identity was really wrapped up in it. The most significant of these, um, these cycles was the, at the time of the exile, and probably it was the worst one. Now, I don't want to confuse us too much and go into too much detail, but essentially, um, the, the kingdom of Judah, which was like the last of the 12 tribes of Israel, the kingdom of Judah was overwhelmed finally by the Babylonian Empire and they took them off into exile. They literally transported more than half the population to, to Babylon, which if you know your geography is, is sort of around modern day Basra in, in Iraq. And uh, they literally forcibly removed them and, and kept them in captivity and that's called the exile. And it was such a traumatic time because not only did they carry them off into exile, they destroyed Israel. They destroyed the whole nation. They destroyed the lands. They destroyed the temple. They destroyed the cities. Honestly, it, I, I, said, I said a few weeks back, it would be like um, some foreign power um, forced to be removed in half the population of the United Kingdom and then destroying everything that's left. That would be a national trauma of unbelievable, incredible proportions. And this is what happened to Israel. And this was the worst. This was the worst time of their lives. Like, this, was, this is as bad a hiatus in their history as anything else that happened. And it really determined uh, their future. Because what they did was, and probably what would happen in our country, was that if someone else came to destroy our traditions and our, our culture, we'd try and write it down. We'd try and record all of it as much as we could so that future generations would not lose through this decimating uh, attack and conquest by the Babylonians. And that's what they did. They wrote it all down. A lot of what we have in the Old Testament in, the, in, in, um, 
in Genesis through to Malachi, a lot of that stuff was written down either during the exile or after the exile. Now, the exile happened about 586 before Jesus, 586 years before Jesus. And it lasted 47 years. It was only in 538 BC that the, some Jews were allowed to return to Jerusalem. And so this is an, an incredible moment in Israel's history. And, and if we want to understand Jesus, we want to understand the time in which Jesus lived, we have to understand that that was the most defining factor in their history. Um, and what we see is that um, when the Jews returned home in 538 BC, um, although they were free to return to Judah, they had to rebuild the walls, rebuild the temple, rebuild society, rebuild their culture, which had been mixed up with 47 years of living in Babylon. And, and that was just an incredibly difficult thing for them to do. Incredibly difficult. Partly because, although they were geographically back home, they were still under the power of a great empire, the Persian Empire. Because the Persians beat the Babylonians, they kicked their butt, Persians took over. Persians were also an empire really trying to define what was going on in Israel at the time. Now, from 538 BC until the time of Jesus, this area of Israel that we call Israel, it was dominated by empire after empire after empire. The Babylonians, then the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans. So these people, right from the time of the exile, which happened around about 586 BC, right through to the time of Jesus, are living under the domination of another powerful um, neighbour. And this is, this is what shapes the life that Jesus is born into. And, and during this time, the Jews longed for a saviour. Like, they didn't just long for a saviour who would come and give them personal freedom and spiritual health. They longed for a saviour that would come and kick out those that were oppressing them. And literally, like, at the time of Jesus, it would have been the Roman Empire. They were longing for someone who would stand up and fight the Romans and defeat them so that they could have their freedom back, their independence back. It was a political situation. They wanted a saviour who would come and rescue them. So what happens? Actually, some people do kind of put their head above the parapet and try and lead some revolutions and revolts, and they all get put down. And then Jesus comes. And Jesus, well, of course, Jesus would have grown up as a child in this situation, a time of foment and unrest, um, a time when revolution was repeatedly raising its head. These were difficult times for a society to live in. Life was not normal. We can relate to that with COVID, can't we? Life was not normal when Jesus was born. His parents wouldn't have been happy with the situation. They would have been longing for someone to throw off the yoke of the Romans and restore the independence of, of Israel and put a king in place. That's what the Jews were longing for. And this is the culture and society that Jesus was born into. This was his Reality. So when Jesus picks up the baton from his relative, John the Baptist, who is another revolutionary leader, Jesus sticks a flag in the sand and writes, the time has come. The time has come. And I think that this passage in Mark is similar to the time when the French Revolution started, when 
when, uh, when people stormed, dissatisfied with the elite and the aristocracy, they stormed the Bastille uh, in Paris to secure weapons in order to lead a revolution. The American Revolution started with the Declaration of Independence, thrown off the yoke of King George and the British Empire so that they could be independent. And they, they put a flag in, a line in the sand, they put a flag in the ground to say, enough is enough, the time has come. We are gonna revolt. And what we have in Mark 1 is Jesus saying this, the time has come. I am the true King of Israel and I am here to liberate Israel. I am the true heir to David's throne. I am the one who the prophets promised would come. It all starts here and now. And Jesus called it good news. Now, before we just run away with what the idea of good news is, let me just explain something. Good news, in Greek, is the word euangelion. Eu means good, angelion, which actually shares the same root as the word angels, Okay, so angelion, angels. It means announcement, which is why, interestingly, we call angels angels as announcers of God's message. It's interesting, isn't it? So we've got you, angelion, good news, good announcement. Now, that kind of makes sense in English, but we need to understand how it made sense in Greek. This is how it made sense in Greek. The, when the Persians invaded Greece, the Greeks fought against them, and they actually beat them. And they beat them in two particular battles called Marathon and Solness. And when the Greeks won these battles against the Persians, they sent out these messengers across the whole land. And these messengers took this message, we've defeated the Persians for you. You are now free from Persian domination. That was the message and the context of Euangelion. These messengers went out across the land and they would come to a village and they say, you're free, you're free from the Persians, we've won the battle, we're free. You're not dominated anymore by the Persians. You can go about your lives as you wish because you are now Greek citizens, free to do as you wish. And they'd go from town to town announcing the good news that the Persians had been defeated. That's the context, the Greek context of the word Euangelion. Now I kind of imagine that that might have been how colonial nations felt when they gained independence from Britain. More recently, I want to honour those people that, that voted for Brexit. I think the Brexiteers looked pretty jubilant, like they'd thrown off the yoke of the European Union, right? That's how they felt. You might not have shared that, but that's how they felt. That's why they were so jubilant. They saw it as throwing off the yoke, we can be free to be a free and independent nation. I've, I only say this as a preface. I've voted in my life yellow, blue, and red. Okay, so I, I'm not particularly uh, politically party uh, loyal, but I, um, in 97, I think it was my first election that I voted in, and um, I don't know why. I, I, I suppose back then I was, um, I was kind of disappointed with the Tory government at the time. I don't know what, why. I couldn't tell you why now, but I do remember feeling very, very happy that Labour and Tony Blair had been voted in. And I don't know if you know the, the song by Doreen, Things Can Only Get Better. I was singing that song, Things Can Only Get Better. Now I've found Tony Blair. You know, it's kind of like, no, literally it was like, this is exciting. There is hope. There is a new future for us. And that's not a party political stunt, by the way. But the reality is, is that I felt that sense of liberation. I felt that sense of hope. And I think it's that sense of good news that, 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 the, uh, that when Jesus says it's good news, Jesus was saying, it's good news. It's not happened yet, but now I'm going to defeat 
all those powers that have dominated Israel. And what we're going to find out as we go through Mark is that actually the Jewish belief was that when Israel was freed, the whole world would be freed. The Israel's story wasn't just their story, it was everyone's story. And it's just incredible. Um, it's that sense of hope and optimism for the future, liberation that Jesus was communicating. Things can only get better. Now I find you, Jesus. Now some of you can say that, right? Things can only get better. Now I found Jesus. That's the message of someone that has found Jesus. I am, things can only get better, right? That's the hope that we have. We can be freed from all the things that control us. Why? Because we put our hope in Jesus. And if you, if you are in the Christian tradition, you will recognize the personal hope that you have as a result of Jesus. But I want you to know that when it was, Jesus was announcing this good news, people would have seen it as political hope. They would have seen it as social hope, that Jesus is going to change the social order, he's going to change the political order, and Israel is going to have its freedom. Now, as we're going to find out during this series, it was just, wasn't just that, it was more than that. But the reality is, is that we must understand that when Jesus announced the good news in Mark 1, 14 and 15, it was, it was political and social because Jesus lived in a world that was political and religious, that, where p- politics and religion were intertwined. N.T. Wright, the New Testament theologian in his book, The Meaning of Jesus, and I recommend you reading this book if you, if you have the time, he says this, we should not be surprised that Jesus, in making his kingdom announcement, kept on the move, going from village to village, and, so far as we can tell, staying away from Sepphoris and Tiberias, the two largest cities in Galilee. He was not so much like a wandering preacher giving sermons or a wandering philosopher offering the maxims like, sorry, offering uh, the maxims as he was like a radical politician gathering support for a new and highly risky movement. And boy, did he pick people to help him. Uh, The first four people that Jesus gathered to his movement were fishermen. Now, I've been thinking about this and, and, and just give me some artistic uh, uh, lateral diverse, uh, divergence here is Jesus picked four fishermen. Now, fishermen in those days were probably quite strong men, right? Uh, they would have eaten fish, a lot of fish. They probably would have eaten a lot of olives because there's a lot of olives uh, and still are a lot of olives grown in that area. Um, so they've eaten a lot of fish, a lot of olives, and probably a lot of bread. Okay, so pretty healthy Mediterranean diet, pretty strong, I imagine. Is it possible that Jesus kind of gathered four heavies to himself. And for that matter, Jesus. I mean, Jesus was a, uh, was a carpenter, wasn't he? Well, some traditions have it that Jesus was actually a stonemason, which gives rise to some interesting uh, things that Jesus said about being the rock on which he'll build his church and being the cornerstone and all of these things, but it's quite interesting thought. But nevertheless, if you're a carpenter or you're a, uh, you know, a stonemason, you're pretty strong, aren't you? In my clinic, I, I, I treat a stonemason at the moment. He's pretty strong. And some of us have this idea that Jesus was this kind of like, I'll draw, draw attention to myself, white kind of Englishman, bit weedy, you know, that was a joke, doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> but we have this sense, don't we, that that's what Jesus was like, right? I'm not sure he was. I think he was a bit strapping. I think he was a bit strong. And I think the men that he gathered to himself, those he gathered men to himself, They were pretty tough guys as well. They were men that did manual living. That means they were strong and burly. And the reality is is that I wonder whether, you know, Jesus Jesus actually encounters so much 
his was a political revolution, he encountered abuse and death threats wherever he went. And we know full well, if you read the gospel of, uh, uh, Gospels of Jesus' life, you'll know full well that at one point, Peter, one of his, these burly men, grabs a sword to protect Jesus and attacks one of the servants of the high priest Caiaphas and cuts his ear off. He doesn't do that if he's not handy with a sword. The reality is these men who followed Jesus were probably a bit different from the men that we kind of imagine. And Jesus was probably a bit different from the Jesus that we imagine. That this was a political, religious movement, a revolution. And of course, we discover, and we will discover as this as series goes on, that it was much more than that. There's no doubt in my mind that the Jews were longing for a saviour. They thought it would be a political saviour that would throw off the, uh, the yoke of Roman Empire. When they heard Jesus... They gathered to him in their droves because here was a man offering them good news. Freedom has come and it's starting with me. I'm leading this revolution. This was the Jesus who said the time has come. The time has come. So let me ask you a story. Uh, sorry, let me ask you a question. What story are you living in? What story are you living in? Is, are you li- if you're living in Jesus' story, did you know that about Jesus? Did you know that's what it was like when Jesus was around? We will see in future episodes of this box set that Jesus was not just the religious and the political and the personal saviour for the Jews. Jewish theology reveals that Jesus was a saviour. The the, the, the saviour would be the saviour of the world. The Jewish Messiah would be the Messiah of the world. If it went well for Israel, it would go well for the world. And that's what we're going to discover in this series. But just right now, understand how Jesus was the saviour of the Jews, the king of the Jews. He He was even crucified with a sign above his head, this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Tell me that wasn't political, religious language. So, what's your story? Jesus knew the story he was part of. He was part of God's unfolding plan for the universe. What is your story? Are you caught up in Jesus' plan, in Jesus' story? Would you like to be caught up in Jesus' story? And what would that mean for your life if you were? Let's pray together and invite God to draw us into the story of the universe. Would you join me?